In the 1970s, Holiday Inn was booming, especially in Tennessee, the company's birthplace. Good lighting, free parking, a continental breakfast, the same look and feel inside and out everywhere you went. For travelers from beyond the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains, for visitors or locals returning to the town of Maryville, the motel was a reliable roadside choice. In July 1974, the weather is hot and sticky. It is four years after Vern Stordock's murder. A guy in his mid-40s checks into the Holiday Inn in Alcoa, a stone's throw from the Knoxville airport. This man has traveled from New York City. Well, it was rather, it was rather strange. He enters his motel room and closes the door. Days pass and nights. Maybe this is what happened next. A motel employee, maybe the maid, goes into that room with a pass key. And finds something that no motel employee ever wants to see inside. He died in a motel in Alcoa, Tennessee. It was his favorite motel, the Holiday Inn. The man who died is John Briggs. He was Suzanne Stordock's second husband. No one knew he was there. And he'd been dead for some time before it was discovered that he died in the room. The words that you are hearing are from John's brother. We're going to call him Joseph to protect his privacy, and the voice you're hearing is an actor. That was an autopsy, which uh, I read the thing several times, and uh, and it was sort of inconclusive. But uh, but apparently he died of some kind of heart failure. There was no sign of foul play, or yeah, no self-destruction or anything like that. And um. Uh, and he hadn't, you know, he hadn't had any known problems or anything. So it was sort of strange. No one knew he was there. John Briggs died four years after Vern Stordock. He left behind a son, David. David Briggs, who had been in the Stordock house on a fateful night in 1970, the night Suzanne confessed to shooting Vern. And John was the second father David had lost. My father died of a heart attack a while after Vern's death, and I got an inheritance, which I lived off for several years. David told me he inherited a sizable amount of money from his dad's estate. That's Dorothy Marsick, Vern Stordock's niece. The last time I saw David was in Tennessee. His mother, Suzanne, told me that David spent a lot of summers with the Briggs family there. It wouldn't shock me if there was evidence showing David was involved. Welcome to Manslaughter.
When he was found dead in an unsung hotel room in Tennessee, John Briggs was both a visitor from New York and a local. He grew up in Maryville, not far from that Holiday Inn. But he also spent years in Wisconsin, where most of our story is happening. That's where he met Suzanne Redhead, who you know from the earlier episodes of this podcast as Suzanne Stordock. John Briggs was a doctoral student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison at the time. The town he came from, Maryville, is home to a small college, 200 years old. John was the son of a professor himself, an aspiring academic. I'm sure Suzanne saw John as a step up from her small-town carpenter first husband. As a member of the Stordock family, Dorothy witnessed parts of Suzanne's third marriage to Vern. She never really knew John Briggs. He was already gone when Suzanne met her uncle. Only much later did she seek out more about Suzanne's second marriage. She didn't learn much. But she did interview Suzanne's maid of honor, a friend from the time who attended her wedding to John in 1952. Her name is Gretchen Reeser. She didn't really know Suzanne and John too well later on as a couple, but she had worked with Suzanne and remembered that. For Susie. She was my she was my boss. We were both at the university, and Susie had charge of a, a you know an office at the university where she did uh, we typed exams. Gretchen was young when she knew Suzanne, nineteen or twenty. It was her first office job. Susie had kind of a messy life, kind of a sad background, I think. I, you know, I felt sorry for her. She kept saying that. Three times, she said that she felt sorry for Suzanne. I felt kind of sorry for her. Besides that, Gretchen thought John Briggs was strange. One time, Gretchen told Dorothy, she and a girlfriend were driving from Wisconsin to Florida. Gretchen was going to see her grandparents. They gave John a ride. John made a move on her friend, even though he was engaged to Susie. So part of why she felt sorry for Susie might have been her husband-to-be. And part of why might have been Susie herself. She was a little bit quite different and probably a little bit unhinged. You know, anybody that did the things she did, even when I knew her, you know, she from her background and just sort of a frantic person to try to, to, try to get her life together and kind of making bad choices the whole time. But I can remember her mother had a baby and it died. She sent me this picture of this baby in a coffin. That is a doorknob. It scared the heck out of me. I, I don't know. It was, it was a strange relationship. I, you know, she was a smart girl. Suzanne's daughter, Donna, knew John Briggs better. After all, her mother was married to him. He was her stepfather. They lived in the same house. Donna Redhead says he called her princess. Yes, he was my uh, papa from when I was about four. Her mother was in the secretarial pool when she met John. John Briggs finished a doctorate in Madison, and he taught for a few years. But she would still support him in his uh, quest for a career. She would type all his papers. She was a fantastic typist. After the wedding, the family moved to Tennessee for a bit. But John was restless. He wanted to go work at an insurance company in New York City. A young executive, a man in a gray flannel suit. He took a job with New York Life. They moved to Queens. In 1953, John and Suzanne had a son, David J. Briggs. You've met him before, in this podcast. 
What you don't know is that David had serious health problems from a young age. He was hospitalized at four. Doctors said he wasn't supposed to live past 30. Dave had a lot of medical problems when he was little and had to be hospitalized for for long periods of time. Um, Had to have a kidney removed, had a hole in his heart, um, was allergic to just about everything. According to Donna, John Briggs wasn't good with kids. He would wrap Donna and David on the head if they were allowed. And John wouldn't visit his son in the hospital. He said hospitals made him nervous. But mom would go to the hospital constantly, and um, papa would not because children made him nervous. When I visited Suzanne, she told me she didn't stay in New York, that she was sent away to John's family in Tennessee because their son, David, made John nervous. That never made sense to me. Dorothy and Donna have different pieces of the puzzle, which add up to a picture of Suzanne, smart like her maid of honor remembered, boosting John Briggs through career challenges. When I talked to her, Suzanne had a nickname for John. She called him the Dumbbell. I think New York society was too big for Suzanne. She told me she couldn't make a splash in such a big, big pond. And I think that John bored her. Suzanne told me she couldn't even stand being in the same room with him. Donna says there was a very good explanation for that. While Suzanne was typing his papers and keeping the house together, John Briggs stepped out on her mother. Oh, and he had once told her if she ever got fat, he would divorce her. But while she was away, uh, he had an affair with her best friend, who was a little heavyset. And mom did not know about that until she came home and found things in the bed that shouldn't be there. And it caused a violent physical reaction in her where she just couldn't stop retching. But they did start living apart. John had no use for Suzanne or the children. So they went to Tennessee to stay with the Briggs family for a while. Then they resettled with Suzanne's parents in Madison. And she used her typing skills to get work and her own apartment with her two young children. She and John eventually divorced in 1958. He stayed on in New York City and in the insurance game. And sometimes he went back to his hometown, like in 1974. That year, during a July as hot and sticky as you can imagine, the Maryville, Tennessee Times ran an obituary. Dr. John M. Briggs, 46, former Maryville resident and Maryville College graduate, died Sunday at the Holiday Inn in Alcoa while home for a rest. The county coroner did an autopsy. It is the consensus of the family physician and coroner that Briggs' heart simply stopped. John's brother told Dorothy Marsick that he had no medical conditions, but John's father told the local paper that his son had not been well. That strikes me as weird. When I talked to John's brother, he said nobody in his family knew about John's last visit to Tennessee. Nobody saw him. The son that John had sent away, the child who had made him nervous, the boy who had health problems of his own, David Briggs, he was in John's will. I don't know exactly how much David inherited, but my guess is around $30,000, which would be more than $300,000 today. He was a young man in the 1970s who was still battling health problems. After his father's estate settled, he had enough money in his pocket for some good times. 
A friend of his from the time, Gary Grassman, says he bought a small house in Madison. He bought property in Madison for, for him to live in, plus for student housing on the west side of Madison. And then he saw the movie Jaws, and he went off the deep end and was going to kill all the sharks he could find. Jaws, the biggest movie in America. A craze in the summer of 1975. That summer was one of long lines and mixed reviews. The LA Times hated Jaws. The reviewer called it coarse-grained and exploitative. Jaws is too gruesome for children and likely to turn the stomachs of the impressionable at any age. And David was fascinated with it. Here's another friend of his, John O'Neill. You know, he had done a lot of traveling, you know, down to Florida and out to Hawaii um, after he inherited uh, some money. And, um, uh, and Gary Grassman will second this. He was inspired by the movie uh, Jaws and thought that it would be a grand idea to go down to Florida and go hunting great white sharks. We all thought, especially after seeing the movie, you know, if I had a list of 100 things to do, that would probably be right about 100. Here's a little bit more from the L.A. Times review. Violence done to the helpless, always the hardest to watch, is here compounded because the victims are in the water, an alien environment. The inability to flee or fight back, as in a nightmare of paralysis, is real and only too easy to identify with. The country went into a shark phobia. Stay out of the water. This is the movie that inspired David to hunt sharks. Then he moved to Florida, and things didn't work out too well there. A, I don't know if it was an off-again, on-again girlfriend burnt his boat down to the waterline. And then he left Florida and went to Hawaii. And then he squandered all his money, and then he was hardly able to come back. The night Vern Stordock was shot, David had a strong emotional reaction. In the years after, his friends say he was destabilized. Then he lost his birth father, too. By the time John Briggs died, David was 22 years old. He had no father, nor father figure. He was lost and wandering. I got a call back in the early 70s from David, my nephew, asking if he could stay with me, with us, for a while. Naturally, I said he could, and then later regretted that decision. Dorothy Marsick interviewed a brother of John Briggs. We're going to call him Joseph to protect his privacy, and the voice you're hearing is an actor. Joseph said when his nephew David came to stay, it didn't work out well. Joseph Briggs told Dorothy Marsick he regretted inviting his nephew David to stay with him for a while. I was a pastor of the Baptist church. I was married with two daughters. And David would be out drinking, chasing girls, hanging out with the motorcycle gang. So he had to go. But Joseph says David did talk about the murder, saying he had witnessed it. Oh. In these years, David admitted to shooting Vern Stordock. He confessed to his friend, Gary Grassman. And uh, I think he had said to me that enough was enough. And I know there was just like a switch was turned because of parts of David's personality went into a 180, you know, 
and all of us around him. Well, we knew it was a tragic event, of course, but all of us, uh, you know, it wasn't one of these things that you knew he was going to snap out of. And then through life after that, I know there was some, he was living, you know, before that, before he told me that, that would be the summer of 72, that we knew he was living with some, with some demons. He, uh, his personality changed so dramatically. You know, he didn't, he didn't become mean, he became withdrawn. And there was times when he would, the old David would, uh, would come out. Grassman says he felt like sometimes he would lose David, like David would sink into darkness. Here's David's friend, John O'Neill. And uh, after the incident, uh, you know, it, it wasn't long. I don't know when the first time he delved into drugs, but um, he was pretty heavy into drugs by um, summer 71. And um, so, you know, it, and his personality had uh, taken a, a complete 180-degree turn. He, he, was, he was unpredictable. Inasmuch as somebody who might be um, mentally ill, um, you know, and this is just, you know, going from, from a layperson, you know, looking at and dealing with somebody that, you know, I'll, I'll talk, you know, in, in my, own, my own experience with them, that it was, it was like dealing with uh, somebody who was, you know, that I had concluded by 1971 was seriously mentally ill. O'Neill isn't a doctor or anything, but he said his friend overreacted to things, flew off the handle, and had dark thoughts. A word he used for David, wild. You know, and uh, I, I remember thinking at the time, you know, under normal circumstances, I, I would not have been uh, physically intimidated by Dave Briggs. Um, but you, you pile on... Uh, mental illness, you know, and <laughs> and suddenly that person isn't exactly the same the same strength or anything. I mean, you're you're dealing with a wild person there. David spent a lot of time in Maryville when he was growing up. He was close with the Briggs family. If John Briggs visited Tennessee, perhaps recovering from some illness, as his father claimed it's entirely possible that David might have taken his motorcycle for a visit. There's no evidence of a motorcycle trip. No plane tickets or hotel reservations connect David to Tennessee around that time. None of his uncles mention him being there, not even at the funeral. In 1974, David was a resident of Wisconsin. So was his mother, Suzanne. But Dorothy also believes she's uncovered evidence that Suzanne came into money when John died. John's brother told me that Suzanne was a beneficiary on one of the insurance policies. John Briggs was in the insurance business. At his death, he was just 46, a consultant at the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. And Suzanne was a beneficiary. In 1970, Vern Stordock's only daughter was a student teacher, not long married, living upstate in Illinois, in a trailer 10 feet wide. Not a mobile home, it was a trailer. Um, there's a difference. <laughs> we lived in a 10 by 56 trailer out in the country. And my landlady, our landlady came over and said, you have a phone call, you had a phone call. 
um, supposed to call him back. 23-year-old Shannon Stordock Hecht got a sinking feeling when she heard that message on March 1st. It's got to be about my dad. Why would I say that? I have no clue. And she just said he's been shot. Sue shot him and he's dead. And that was it. She pulled herself together and started making phone calls. She looked forward to seeing her mother Janelle in Wisconsin, Vern's first wife. Figuring out how to get to the town of Beloit from her home to Wisconsin was complicated. Two trains, maybe a bus for the last leg. Fortunately, her mother had sent a forward scout. And I get off the train, I'm walking, and all of a sudden somebody grabs my purse off my shoulder. And I just reach around, and I'm ready to smack him. And it was my uncle, my mother's brother. He'd come to get me. He had driven back down from Beloit to Chicago, and, and then we would go back to Beloit. On the train, she had plenty of time to think. It had been a while since she had talked to her father. She missed the days when he had been her confidant. She didn't know it yet, but soon she would go with her grandmother to the funeral parlor and listen as the director there refused to show them her father's body. She would also, with her mother, file a claim to her father's estate and his life insurance policy. And we filed it and um, thought, wow, this would really help with student loans and everything else. You know, if we could get this life insurance, this would be wonderful. When Vern Stordock died, his daughter Shannon didn't get a penny. His second wife, Suzanne, and his adopted child, her son Danny, did. Dorothy says members of Vern's family believed he would return to Janelle. Certainly, Janelle held on to a copy of his will, dated from 1950. But a second will, filed in 1967, was more recent. So it was the one that counted. And in it, Suzanne Stordock was named as the person who would handle the legal matters that arose from Vern's death. That didn't sit right with Vern's niece, Dorothy. I found it interesting going through the voluminous probate documents that right after the murder, she kept turning in requests to the probate to the bank to get all this money for the kids, for the house, so many expenses. Some of what she asked for were more than the value of the house itself. Court documents reveal that Suzanne had loaned a lot of money to Vern, a debt his estate needed to pay off when he died. Credit card charges, dentist bills, car loans, debts of all kinds, all of that drained assets from the state further. Even though she said, oh, I've got to make repairs, and then I need this for dental and stuff for David, who wasn't even legally related to my uncle, and then on the forms it would say, What's your relationship to the deceased? And she'd put widow. And I'm like, well, who made you a widow? Her personal attorney witnessed the 1967 will that removed Shannon completely in favor of her son, a boy Vernie had known for less than five years. There was a separate question of life insurance. Shannon raised a claim to it. She and her mother knew about a policy Vern had gotten when he went back to Korea 20 years earlier. But again, there was a newer policy. And through a lawyer, Suzanne and her son Danny had just laid claim to the proceeds, too. Well, we didn't. We didn't. We didn't get it. Because she produced life insurance from six months before that he'd signed a policy for her six months before she did him in. Vern's will and insurance policies cut his daughter out entirely. 
Dorothy blames Suzanne for that. When I was in college, I'd go over there. Suzanne would get up and announce in the middle of family and friends that Vern's not going to get any more sex from me until he does what I want. And it wasn't until years later, when I was doing this research, that I started putting the dates together. And I realized when Suzanne said those things was right before Vernie changed his will and cut out his daughter Shannon. It wasn't just because the policy naming Suzanne and Danny was newer. When he died, the Minnesota Mutual Life Insurance Company asked a judge to sort out which claims on Vern's policy mattered between Suzanne and Danny and Shannon. That's a pretty normal thing to do when someone's cause of death is a gunshot to the head. And it's a long-standing principle of law. A killer isn't supposed to profit from a crime. That was Shannon's strongest argument that Suzanne shouldn't collect on the insurance policy because she caused Vern's death. Suzanne's lawyer made a different case, that she didn't act wrongfully in Vern's death. She didn't plead guilty to anything, and she denied committing acts with intent to kill Vern or even having knowledge that Vern had been killed. Her argument went even further. Suzanne claimed that she had been exonerated by the Circuit Court of Dane County in Vern's death. Fifty-year-old records in the Dane County Courthouse are incomplete. But on the specific question of insurance, a judge threw Shannon's claim out. He reasoned that even if something prevented Suzanne from collecting the money, the policy that mattered, the newest one, provided a backup recipient, Suzanne's son, Danny. Well, so then I found out that I didn't get the life insurance. She didn't get the life insurance. The life insurance went to her her son, her youngest son, which my father had adopted. So the life insurance went to the youngest son, Danny Stordak, and that was it. Uh, As a minor, that means she got it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. She got the whatever amount it was. It was a you know, it was a ten thousand dollar life insurance policy. Yeah. Probably she did not get ten thousand dollars, but that's that's what it was and yeah. Yeah. Well in fact I think there's a clipping amongst all that other stuff that says it went to Daniel. Hmm. It actually because um, I talked to the lawyer who was involved in that and um they they didn't expect any to go to her because they, they had hired him to do case law and he couldn't everything said that the person who who um, murdered somebody shouldn't get it but that's why it went to Danny from the available records it's not clear why this happened but the final outcome was unusual to say the least under Vern's final and most recent life insurance policy, Suzanne Stordock and her son Danny split about $13,000 in proceeds. Well, they made a, they made a deal with, with the um, insurance company that, that he, he, Danny would get, I don't know, it was 50% and she would get 50% or something. But I'm, um, and this lawyer was shocked by it, but uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure Danny never saw that, you know. Oh, I don't think he did. Yeah, and, and, and you know the funny thing about it wasn't the, wasn't the final case that that settled it that you cannot uh, profit from your crime. 
As she returned to Beloit, Shannon thought back to when Vern had left. It took her entirely by surprise. She was 15 years old. There was a weekend that stuck out in her memory. Her father came to pick her up, took her to a Howard Johnson's in downtown Madison for a Friday fish fry dinner. Howard Johnson's had 28 flavors of ice cream for dessert. Pretty normal. But then he put her in a motel room by herself, closed the door, and left her there. He was gone all night. He didn't come, he didn't come to, the, to the hotel until morning. And I was so upset because I didn't know whether he was dead or alive. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why he didn't come back. I mean, he was supposed to be spending the week, weekend with me, and he, and he didn't. So after he picked me up, we went out to the house in Oregon that, that he ended up being murdered. We went out to that house, and, and Sue sort of showed me around the house a little bit. Shannon says she was terrified, partly because she hadn't had much exposure to downtown Madison before. Also, this wasn't what a father was supposed to do. What was I supposed to say? Was I supposed to say how I really felt? I, I don't think that would have worked real well. Um, I guess I just didn't want to hurt him by saying how I really felt about it. Because I was so uncomfortable, you wouldn't believe it. It wasn't the last time she would see Vern. There was one more time. When she was coming of age, getting through school, her father went to court to put an end to the child support payments. He was on one side of court. Shannon and her mother, Janelle, were on the other. And um, um, that was the last time I saw him, so I would have been just over 21. But that was it, and that was in court. You know, nary a word was spoken, I guess. Shannon and her father simply didn't talk. It was after that when Vern made a bunch of changes to his will and his insurance. 1967, the same year that his daughter got engaged. Um, did your father come to your wedding? No, I didn't invite him. Surprisingly, Suzanne intervened on Vern's behalf. And I got a note from, I got a note from Suzanne saying that if I would, that if I would invite him, she would not come. And I wrote her back and I said no. So then I, that was really sort of cutting off my nose to spite my face. Is that how the expression goes? I, I probably could have mended some bridges at the time, but I would just, to me, it just wasn't worth it. Vern Stordock had a complicated relationship with being a father in these years. After Vern was shot, Suzanne's son, Danny, got half of the insurance payout because Vern had adopted him. And that would be legally possible only if Danny's birth father gave up his parental rights. He must have done that for the adoption to stand. What kind of man would do that? Irv Gast. Irv Gast was always on the run, including when Suzanne met him. His own children say so. I knew very little about my father, only um, from stories, uh, mostly from stories from my mother and other family. Jim Gast is Irv's second son. My mother told me around 1955, Irv came to Park Forest, Illinois, where we were living at the time, in order to try to strike a deal about the back child support and future child support. Uh, my mother already had an arrest warrant out for him for lack of child support. Suffice it to say, they didn't reach any agreement, 
and Irv left, perhaps get married and divorced again. The records are pretty hard to track down. By that point, Irv was around 30. Jim Gast believes he was conceived on one of his father's short boomerang visits to his mother. He never really knew his dad at all. But every time my mother found out that he was in Texas or California or, or Hawaii, uh, she would uh, take out an arrest warrant from the, with the local police to have him arrested to pay his back child support. It had no hope of actually gathering any money. Irv got by in life by being good-looking and charming, tending toward the slick side. He definitely was the kind of guy who made a strong first impression. Irv Dast was a, a fun-loving kind of guy, uh, but he couldn't hold a job to save his soul. I don't think he held a job for more than a few weeks ever in his life. His father was prosperous, though. Abraham Gast. He had a very successful dry-cleaning and tailoring company, and he kept giving Irv various business opportunities. None of them stuck. And I guess he was charming as an adult, but as a kid, um, I didn't see that. Suzanne's daughter Donna was about 11 when her mother married Irv. Uh, And we had to call him sir. He had uh, respect issues. She says he was emotionally and verbally abusive. I was the bane of his existence. I can't explain why. I think that he cared about my mom, but he, uh, he just developed this hatred of my brother and me. And um, I remember one sick day when he had been yelling and berating us, and I just ran out into a storm. I didn't care if there were 90-mile winds or not. I ran across into the woods, and I wouldn't come back home until, until Mom showed up. Within a year, Danny was born. Donna called these days for her family dysfunctional. And she echoes what Irv's older sons say, that Irv wasn't much of a provider. But my brother Dave had a really rough time ever, ever talking about it. And my brother Dan um, always knew, gosh, there was something really wrong with his dad. And that was sad that they had to grow up, you know, with that uh, trauma. Jim Gast says his father wanted all of his children to meet, but his mother had other ideas. Irv showed up unannounced with Suzanne in Illinois, wanted us boys to meet our new brother. My mother, Tricia, did not agree. Mike and I saw them for a few minutes before my mother sent us, I think, to a neighbor's. Irv Gast had issues with his mental health. And for Suzanne, his second wife, he was still a runaround kind of guy. Here's what Donna remembers. Behind her back, he would threaten to leave her. He would tell us, my brother and, and me, Um, that we were so horrible that as soon as our brother Dan was born, he was leaving mom. I don't know if he plotted it all along, but she paid for him. She supported us all on a secretary's salary and um, put him through beauty school. I remember when he did my hair, I thought it was the ugliest thing I'd ever seen, but you know, tastes different. I was a kid. (laughs) So, um, and when he left with another woman and disappeared, um, You know, all his threats against us um, seemed huge. I think their marriage quickly declined because Irv couldn't offer Suzanne anything. Dorothy Marsick. But Abe, Suzanne's father-in-law, he had money. By all accounts, Abe was generous with his daughters-in-law, even once their marriages ended to Irv, according to Mike Gast. Abe had affection for her based on two things. First, that she was uh, his son's wife, and he was always 
remarkably supportive of Irv. Uh, and the second, of course, was that she was uh, the mother of one of his five grandchildren. And Abe was always devoted to the five of us. Jim Gast says Abe had a sense of responsibility to his mother and Suzanne and his five grandchildren. Uh, Abe Gast doted on his grandsons. I can attest to that personally. But he also um, felt a strong sense of responsibility to his uh, daughter-in-laws. He, when I was uh, very young, Abe Gast would routinely bring over groceries to make sure that we had good, healthy food to eat and, and to make sure that his um, daughter-in-laws were not left hanging by the uh, missteps of his son, uh, he felt responsible. So uh, I have some documentation that Abe actually bought the house that that, uh, my mother uh, lived in in Madison, Wisconsin. Irv's father, Abraham Jacob Gast, was a kindly tailor who had gotten out of Germany before the Nazis rose to power. He remained a good friend of Suzanne's and her children until his death. Suzanne was a Christian when she married Irv. He was Jewish, and his father, Abe, was a religious man. Donna says she was 11 when her mother became a Jew. Rabbi Swarzynski and my mom would meet uh, every week. Um, We always gave his four-foot mom a ride to the synagogue, and um, uh, they would have in-depth discussions Mom had learned, uh, had been learning um, ancient Greek, and Rabbi Swarzynski was so impressed with her. And the rabbi and she uh, constantly uh, met, and she would have questions, and he would ask her questions, and um, she was satisfied with the answers. Uh, But Judaism was her life after that. She converted because she believed in the scriptures, and in the, um, the, the tenets of faith of Judaism. And they became very real to her. Because a, a Jew doesn't just believe like, oh, we're going to go to heaven after we die because um, we are part of the chosen people. It's more, um, we have to bring peace on earth. We have to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, you know, take care of the poor. And once we bring these messianic qualities to fruition, then the Messiah will come. The process of conversion can vary from congregation to congregation, but becoming a Jew is generally an act of significant work. Jim Gass doesn't think Suzanne's husband, a man of little work, was behind that idea. Um, Conversion to Judaism is a very laborious, a very long process, and it includes... um, a lot of, of training. Uh, I, I don't think that was Irv's, um, Irv Gast's wish or desire, or I don't think he was uh, encouraging that much at all. But I'm absolutely confident that Suzanne knew that it was important to Abe Gast that uh, Irv uh, marry a nice Jewish girl. On November 17th, 1962, Abe Gast died in a hospital. There was an heirs meeting to discuss Abe's estate. Jim says both of Irv's ex-wives showed up. Let me talk about Abe's estate. Um, Suzanne had moved on by the time Abe Gast died in November of 1962, but she was still legally married to Irv. At the 
heirs meeting in the spring of 1963, Irv went there expecting to get one third of the generous enterprise of the estate. Little did he realize that his ex-wife and current wife would both materialize. Both Suzanne and Mike Gast's mother spoke up at the meeting, according to the Gast brothers. Mike says his mother had a very strong personality. My mother and Suzanne, the two women that I knew who were married to my father, um, were very controlling. I don't think that my father was uh, perhaps the strongest person in those marital relationships. Is that a nice way of saying that? At the heirs meeting, Jim Gast says both women aired their dirty laundry about a man who himself showed up to make a claim on an estate enriched by a dry cleaning business. He says that didn't work out well for Irv. Each of his ex-wives split his share of the estate. He got nothing. Uh, my understanding is that uh, my mother was very satisfied with what she got out of the, out of the probate. Um, the two women were are both very strong-willed um, women who know what they want and, and don't stop at anything to get it. But I just can't believe that, that either one of them was uh, willing to settle. Mike Gast says... Um, Abe left an estate of uh, about $90,000, uh, half in financial materials and half in real estate. Uh, he had he had some prime uh, real estate holdings in Madison. Um, and uh, he divided it up basically into four parts. Like many of the people in this story, Irv's life did not go well after the death of his father. Uh, he was living in a flop house uh, in the Tenderloin. Uh, some years after, uh, I actually went and visited the place. Um, it was, um, you know, a, a buzz-in entry, bars on, on the window uh, in front of the, the manager's cage, uh, single rooms, uh, rent by the day place. Irv died in 1977. He was 52 years old. They found him in his room. Uh, unresponsive, uh, and he had, uh, it turned out at the time of autopsy, uh, he'd uh, taken a, a heavy overdose of secondol, and uh, he had, uh, he'd killed himself. Sadly, Irv's own son, Danny, also died by suicide. Fifteen years later, he was just 32. Irv is buried in a potter's field somewhere outside of San Francisco. So um, his, his life, I think, uh, especially after the loss of his father, who held his head above water for all those years, I, I think his life spun steadily downhill uh, and uh, ended sadly and uh, tragically. I don't think he had anybody there for him uh, at or near the end. This is a story about families swirling together and spinning apart. You've heard now about most of the men who came into Suzanne's life, who for a time were her family. 
Donna remembers Irvgast as the reason Vern Stordock came into her mother Suzanne's life. Somehow when mom met Vern, Vern stepped in as a detective to find out where the heck the guy had gone and if he was going to carry out his threats against us or not. In some way, some men Suzanne had been married to failed her. Rakish, unstable Irv racked up debts, emotional and physical, that even his responsible father could not pay. He died in a flop house in San Francisco. John Briggs, who had betrayed Suzanne with her best friend, died alone in a motel room. And after them, Vern Stordock. Here's Donna again. And um, we welcomed Vern when he, when he showed up. He seemed like a really good guy. Suzanne confessed to shooting Vern in their bedroom in Oregon. Perhaps she witnessed someone very close to her shoot him. Dorothy proposes a connection among Suzanne's first three husbands. Suzanne made money on all of them. Dorothy believes there's more to the story, something else to know about the Gast family, about Abe in particular. As a Jew, Suzanne knew that Abraham's family believed that the human body is sacred and should not be disturbed after death. That would prevent an autopsy on Abe Gast. Why would that matter? Why? Because Suzanne was in the hospital room with Abe when he died. Next on Manslaughter. Sue Brandon is the kind of candidate who will answer the tough questions. Elect Sue Brandon, state representative. Manslaughter is produced by Bill Franzblau, who also supervised the music. Marty Scott is the writer. Dorothy Marsick is the co-host and author of the book With One Shot. Executive producers are Bill Franzblau, Dorothy Marsick, Marty Scott, and Molly Peterson. Gregory T. Smith and the Oregon Historical Society provided research. Sarah Kalin is a forensic consultant. Shannon Stordock-Hecht is a story consultant. Actors who recreated voices include Jacob Behrens, Charlie Ray, Jeff Wisniewski, Dan Fishman, Tamara Erickson, Kirsten Rodow, Robert Smythe, Steve Travis, Gary Berg, Brady Gonsalves, Buck Scherner, and Chris Sapienza. Nick Cortides is the sound designer and engineer. Martin Cadillo provided original music scoring and engineering. Additional engineering by Sergio Enriquez at Wondery. Tony Bruno produced and arranged songs that Danielle Harris sang. For the music, special thanks to Clear Cut Incorporated, John Fry and Barb Hall, Warner Chapel Music, Sony ATV Music, Spirit Music, Abco Music, Fabulous Music, Round Hill, Harlan, BMG, and all the amazing people at Wondery. I'm your host and co-writer, Molly Peterson. Imagine how the world could be So very fine, so happy together I can't see